Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. As I mentioned before, as we look at Hebrews, the point is that we're looking at a greater reality. We're, we're invited to look into the heavenly tabernacle and to look beyond uh, this earth. And as we look at this climatic chapter in Hebrews, as I mentioned, chapter 9, sort of the climax of the book, is laying out the significance of Christ and the work that Christ does in the heavenly tabernacle. And so the author of Hebrews continues to honestly belabor uh, the point uh, to the point where he almost begged for mercy and say, I get it already, of the superior shedding of Christ's blood. And so we can fall into a point where almost this, this kind of falls on deaf ears, where we say, okay, Christ's death is greater than the death of animals. I, I get it. Uh, Christ's bloodshed is greater than the bloodshed of the animals. I, I get it. But, but what, what did Christ really do, right? I mean, when you get to Hebrews, well, one of the things we can miss is a, a brilliance in how the author takes the work and death of Christ and opens it up in a much bigger and broader perspective than even what the Gospels do. Now, I, I'm aware this is a very strong claim, but it's rather remarkable what he does as we'll look at this, at this chapter. And so I guess that leaves us with, with the issue of what is a fundamental contribution to the canon of Scripture from this letter? Well, what does he lay out about the death of Christ that, that is so profound? Uh, something that, that we could so easily miss and unfortunately take for granted as human beings. And so what is the fundamental profound point? Well, we'll see first a greater washing. We'll see the new covenant. And we'll see then the definitive bloodshed. In verse 22, basically a transitional verse. So let's begin with a greater washing, uh, basically looking at verses 11 through 14. We look at 11 through 14, we understand that the author has mentioned it, and we've addressed this, and it's important to understand <clears throat> that the author's point is not a problem of a tangible religion, right? I mean, fundamentally, where we're sojourning will be tangible. I'm not saying in this age we go back to these things. That, that would be contrary to Hebrews. But where we're going is tangible. And so as I've mentioned before, there's people that bring a criticism against this book in saying that it's you know, Gnostic or Platonic, where there's this world of really real forms. That's the reality. They're just shapes. They're just ideals. And then there's a projection on this earth. Now you look at chapter 8 where he talks about the shadow and the uh, shadow and, and, and basically the uh, types of the things in heaven. Use in 8 verse 5 when they say shadow. It's the picture of the really real world shining down on this earth. The author of Hebrews is, is contradicting this and in arguing chapter 9 really clarifying this point we need to listen. And when we look at all of Scripture, we can see that it's not an issue of tangibleness because we're going to be raised in a glorified body. 
John, when he uh, has his vision in Revelation, he sees a new heavens and a new earth. He sees a physical Jerusalem coming down. So, so we need to see our earthly sojourn as going to a true, tangible, heavenly city. A place where there's a language of a heavenly banquet. Christ eats when he is raised from the dead. And so it's not that Hebrews has a problem with a physical, fleshly uh, understanding of, of redemption. I mean, we are going to be physically raised. We, we shouldn't see that as a fundamental problem. We also know from chapter 8, if we look at this, that, that this is qualified. And the author of Hebrews, if somebody ever brings this charge or claim to you, walk them through it. I mean, 8 verse 1, where is Christ seated? In a heavenly throne, right? It's, it's pictured as there's an actual throne room, a place where Christ is enthroned in glory as a God-man. As we go then in chapter 9, as I mentioned, he's clarifying this further. Verses 11 and 12, there, there's actually a movement that's communicated here. That Christ, he appears and he goes and he moves from the perfect to the greater tent. And so it's not that the tabernacle is, is, is a failed mission of God. That's not what Hebrews wants us to understand. God really met with his people there. Uh, that, that was a real place that was really blessed by God. But we have to understand the purpose of it. It's not for us to go back to the tabernacle. It's for us to understand we're on a new sojourn, Hebrews 3 to 4. And we're going to the heavenly tabernacle, the greater tabernacle. And so, remember we said last time, it's not that the author of Hebrews has a problem with a tangibility to our religion. He has a problem with an earthly religion, right? Because this earth is fallen. This earth can never sanctify itself. It can never purify itself. It can never glorify itself. It is fallen. That's the consequence of Adam. That's what happened in the fall. We are fallen creatures. We need redemption. And that's what Hebrews is saying. Israel was picturing a redemption. It was calling to, to our attention that God intends to bring what was intended for Canaan in its ideal state. God was going to bring in its full glory. So while Canaan itself as a small replica and model served its purpose, we're not to go back to that. We're to travel and have our eyes focused on the heavenly city. That's the goal he's calling to our attention. Now, when he calls to our attention this tabernacle, he wants us to understand what this tabernacle is. Because you, you can understand this <clears throat> as people gathering together with, with a history. I mean, can, can you imagine you, you grow up worshiping God one way, right? You've grown up since you were a child. You remember what church was. You know exactly how it functions. You know your holidays. All of a sudden, this event transpires, and these guys who were Jews who claimed to see a resurrected Christ all of a sudden say, well, that's not how we worship anymore. You, you can think, well, we have the tabernacle, we have the temple, we had sacrifices, we had these things. Well, what was the purpose of them if they were just meaningless? That's what Hebrews is addressing now. Saying, listen, that history was not meaningless. And he's saying, and I want you to understand that it's not that God just done away 
uh, with sacrifice in the sense that that's never been necessary or a sacrifice is not necessary. He's saying, let's talk about what these things pictured and what has transpired and why we do not continually make sacrifices. So that's what he's arguing now and articulating and saying, let's look at where we're going. So he calls our attention to this heavenly tabernacle. He's using language that he'll use in Hebrews 11 of the patriarch sojourning to a land that is not made with human hands or human architects, right? It's a place designed by God. And he uses this language, um, and it's hard to bring into the English, but, but it's language of complete or perfect. And what that means is it's, it's a building project that is not something we can comprehend as humans. Honestly, we, we can't. Because even when we finish a building project, we still have to do maintenance, right? I mean, roofs fail, windows fail, structures fail, carpets fail, right? It's not really complete, right? There's always maintenance that has to be done. Maybe it's not big maintenance, but you got to clean it. You got to take care of it, right? You know, we think of spring cleaning, fall cleaning, these sorts of things that, that we use. The picture of this is that once this tabernacle is built, it's done. Priests don't need to maintain anything. We talked about how the priests need to keep filling the candles, right? And there's a big consequence. If you don't fill uh, the lampstands or the menorahs, you're saying that God has departed. You're saying Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. That, that's a terrible thing. You don't want that to happen on your watch. But this tabernacle that God builds doesn't need anything. It's done. And so the, the force of what's being brought into our, our language, or that's communicated, is, is when it's built, it's built. It doesn't get rebuilt. Uh, there is no maintenance of it. There is no failing. Uh, the, the walls don't fail. The structure doesn't fail. It is done. It is complete. It is finished. That's the significance of this building. It is eternal. Everlasting. Never ends. Needs no maintenance. It's not like this earth where things de uh, deteriorate and, and break down. But he also talks about the blood in verse 12. And he draws a contrast now. because so he talked about the Day of Atonement. Remember, we talked about the two goats. You have the one goat that's a scapegoat. Put the, the priest puts his hands on there. Symbolic of uh, expiation, you know, making payment and removing all the offense. It's, it's calling to your attention everything that needed to be done to pay the debt is paid. It, it's done. It's removed. It's out of the camp. So when that goat is sent out into the wilderness to die, all sin is removed from the people of Israel. The goat that dies is communicating the atonement, the shedding of blood, also the payment, covering for sin, taking away sin, making payments. So those two goats are symbolic of that significance. But this was repeated year after year. So you can understand, this is my tradition. I like this repetition. Now the author of Hebrews is building on this. Say, okay, we talked about that. Now let's, let's draw this home. That had to be repeated because it was not definitive. Now there's a one-time shedding of blood that's done. It's finished. Christ's own blood uh, shed, is shed and it is finished once for all. Now in terms of the accomplishment of this, he wants us to understand 
why this is so significant. This is done for an eternal redemption. And so like the tabernacle that's built once, it's finished, complete, needs nothing more, never needs maintenance. This is where Christ resides in the most holy place. He doesn't need to shed blood. Sheds his, or the blood of an animal for himself. He sheds his own blood. And as he sheds his own blood, it's not to purify himself. <clears throat> it's done so that we can enter into this most holy place. In fact, he is so holy, so pure, that he can offer himself as a priest-king sacrifice and preside in this very place. And so this, this uh, language of eternal redemption, something else is very important. Uh, Luke uses this, 1 verse 68, uh, in, in praising of God, 2 verse 34, in praising of Christ. Because the, the redemption is calling to our attention the total uh, accomplishment of Christ's work. Redemption is basically the celebration of being released, right? Uh, if you're a slave, somebody pays a redemption, it means that you're no longer under obligation to the previous slave owner. You're free, you're done, your, your obligation's over. So when Christ pays the redemption, it means all of our obligation, everything held against us in sin is released, it's removed. So we're not looking at a day of atonement and saying, Whew, you know, we made it another year and God didn't wipe us off the face of the earth. But now you have to make it another year, right? And you don't know, what does this year hold? Am I going to do as well this year? Well, the assurance is with this eternal redemption, it's a once for all taking away all of this problem. It's done, it's finished, it's eternal. We never have to look to it again. And so that's a beautiful uh, declaration that's made here. But we have something else. And there's a, a bit of a, a language here going on in, in verse 11. Now, I side with the ESV, so I guess it's not very dramatic as to where I go with this. But in verse 11, where uh, we have Christ who appears as high priest, and he goes through the greater or more perfect tent. Now, this tent is literally translated tabernacle. So the tabernacle is taken two ways grammatically. It can either be uh, Christ is a means of entrance, meaning that Christ is our tabernacle, or it's literally the tabernacle uh, that uh, Christ enters or goes through the tabernacle. Now, we might say maybe this is just, <clears throat> just a bunch of language geeks having too much time on their hands, and that's possible. But there are some pretty profound implications here, which is why I call it to your attention. Uh, the people who say that Christ is a tabernacle would appeal to a passage like John 1 verse 14 that says Christ tabernacled among us. And they'd say, see, Christ is identified as a tabernacle. Uh, so they would appeal to the fact that Christ shedding of blood makes it so we can enter into the presence of God. Now, theologically, that's, that's not wrong. I mean, obviously, we, we believe that and, and we affirm that. So it's not like theologically, well, that position's heresy and it's wrong. No, it's, that's not what I'm saying. But if we say that Christ is just a tabernacle in the means, we, we begin to deprecate the significance of what Christ has done. This is why I think it's important why I appreciate the ESV translating it the way that it does. Because for Christ to pass through the tabernacle takes the, the redemption, the atonement, the, the 
sacrifice that Christ has made on the cross and takes it to a whole new level. Because what the author of Hebrews is doing is while the, the gospel writers present the work of Christ from sort of an earthly plane, right? It's the perspective of the disciples. We thought he was a rabbi. Here he dies on a cross. How can he be the Christ? So they're, they're questioning it from a human point of view. Why does this Christ need to die? And obviously with the resurrection of Christ, especially Luke 24, it explains more as to why Christ needed to die. But it's it's a human historic parallel just, just here on this age. What Hebrews does in his brilliance is the author of Hebrews is saying, let's look at this from the heavenly perspective. Remember Genesis 22? Abraham raises, or Abraham raises his hand against his son, is about to offer him on the altar, and the angel of the Lord says, whoa, whoa, stop. This is not the one. The angel of the Lord is the one who's going to be sacrificed. What Hebrews is telling us is that the Father, in terms of Christ and the cross, as we see Christ and the cross in this world, which truly happened, I believe it happened, I believe Christ was physically raised from the dead, but as this really happens, the author of Hebrews is inviting us now to basically be transported up into heaven and to witness what has happened. As we have the imagery of Exodus 24, of Moses slaughtering the animals, sprinkling the people of, of God with blood, sprinkling the altar, the holy things with blood, the picture here now is the father taking the knife, slaughtering the son on the heavenly altar, and cleansing the heavenly tabernacle so we can enter into the most holy place. That's why it's significant that Christ is the one who enters through this holy tabernacle. It's not through the earthly one. It's the Father taking the life of the Son. So when the Son says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, this is where the Father is taking the Son and taking his life and offering him and sprinkling the heavenly reality with Christ's blood so we enter into the greater, the greater uh, tabernacle that God himself has built and so this is the reality of what we see with the author of Hebrews and his contribution to the atonement. It's not just that Christ is a priest. The priest would offer an animal, sanctify himself. The priest would cleanse himself in the blood, make sure he was ready to enter. No, this is Christ entering as he is, as a perfect sacrifice, the one who has earned it, the one who is a blessed of God, the Father, pronouncing, this is my son with whom I am well pleased at his baptism, transfiguration, and brought into heaven where the Father takes his life and cleanses the holy sanctuary to which we draw near. So when we, we look at this and, and we can have sympathy, I mean, we, I, I guess we can have sympathy with a Jewish mindset of saying, but I want the tabernacle, I want the temple, I want the altar. Okay, we, we get it. But the author of Hebrews is saying, let's have a bigger picture here. Let's see what's really transpired. Because now it's not a, a heifer that's done it. And he, he affirms it. Listen, the animals, yeah, they, they did take away the wrath of God for a time, outwardly, cleansed the flesh. Certainly, they, they accomplished something. So Hebrews is saying, we're, we're not denying that. It was commanded by God. Exodus 24, we have record of Moses doing this very thing. However, the contrast is told to us in verse 14. That while the, 
blood of the heifers, a blood of the goats, really kind of did something in the sense of take away the outward blemishes, uh, make someone ceremonially worthy to come before the Lord. The work of Christ does something more profound. Purify our conscience. Uh, a way of basically explaining this is that it takes the inner being of who we are, the inner essence of, of our being, uh, our heart, Hebrew would be sort of the bowels, basically the very depths of who we are. And as it takes us and transforms us, then now we, we have these fundamental desires that change, that it's no longer just an outward purity that needs to be done again and again and again, but this one-time work of Christ and this eternal redemptive blessing, the outpouring of His Spirit, this eternal redemption that is made, means that we can continually draw near to the Lord who is seated in the heavenly tabernacle, cleansed by His blood, seated in the throne of heaven on the throne of grace, and draw near to this King who has redeemed. And so Hebrews is saying, you don't want to go back to that. There's nothing lasting, nothing definitive, nothing that's going to truly cleanse you. But what you have in Christ, this is lasting, this is enduring. Yes, we're on a wilderness sojourn, Hebrews 3 to 4, but you're going to the heavenly tabernacle, cleansed by Christ himself. Going on then now, as he uh, summarizes uh, the point of the contrast between the blood of animals and the blood of Christ, which is basically what verses 11 through 14 is doing. So he's taking the, the case that he has made and summarizing and saying, this is why I called all this to your attention. Now he's picking up on a citation at the end of chapter 8 where he cited Jeremiah 31, 31, or going on from 31 to 31 through 34. And in that prophecy of the new covenant, he's saying, now let's take this blood and let's bring this into further implications as to what this means. This brings us now to the new covenant. And so Christ here is a mediator of a new covenant. And again, I appreciate how the ESV translates this. Uh, some translations would say uh, testimony or will or testament, uh, which is another way of translating it, but I think it misses what Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews 8, citing Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 about the new covenant. But now he's going back to that, pulling this back into the argument saying, okay, now with the, the death of Christ, let's talk about this new covenant. He's the one who's a go-between. He's the one who offers himself. And so blood has to be shed. And so when he calls us to our attention, saying, listen, as a reality, blood has to be shed. Uh, when Moses gives his farewell speech in Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 15 through 20, he says, if you do these things, you will live. You don't do these things, you will die. Uh, Moses goes on and he tells Israel, you're going to end up in exile. You're going to uh, basically make an abomination of things. You're going to fall into idolatry. You're not going to do this perfectly. This is why Christ needs to die. This calls our attention, the very reality of what you have in covenantal ceremonies, where you have the offering of the animals and the splitting of the animals in two, Genesis 15. And so the individual may not literally die, but there is bloodshed, and it's a picture of death. 
And so it's a reminder that here I am as a great king. If you're the lesser king and you fail to keep these obligations, you will be like those animals. So look at that. Take it in. That's your future if you dare to cross me or transgress me, right? So that's what the, the covenant is, is laying out there. But Genesis 15 becomes so profound. Because when Abraham stares down between the pieces of animals and he looks at the blood running out of them, all Abraham can think is, I'm going to end up in hell. This is why there's a language of the deep darkness that overcomes him. Abraham knows his fate. Death. Hell, that's what awaits him. So when the Lord passes between the pieces of animals as a you know, smoking fire pot and, and a torch or, or the flaming oven and go in there, it's the Lord showing that he's walking between the pieces of animals. The Lord is the one who's taking the curse upon himself. So now when we go through this and we have that background, verse 17 for a will takes effect only at death. So when that death happens, there is the establishment of that covenant, the establishment of that will and testimony. It's established, it's set. We have even the first covenant being inaugurated with blood. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, let's think back to Exodus 24. What happens here? Well, we have Moses making an altar, Exodus 24, verse 3, uh, where the people of Israel, Moses says, all that you say we will do. The altar's made. Burnt offering consecrates it. You have blood. You have animals shed. 24 verse 7, Moses lays out the stipulations. The people say, all that you say we will do. Exodus 24 verse 8, Moses takes blood, sprinkles the people of God. They are implicated in this death. And so the, the reality is, if we are left in that mosaic arrangement, there is no way into the heavenly tabernacle. There is no way into that place of rest. We are confined to an earthy age that is sin-cursed that will never get out of its own way. This, this is where the author of Hebrews is saying, you go back to that. You're never getting out of it. You are never going to have life. But he's saying, listen, with the death of Christ, we have the establishment of what was promised to Abraham. The very thing that the people of Israel are guilty and should receive as death, Christ took in their place. And he's saying, listen, as God has made this, as God has established this, as God has secured us, we do not want to go back to this reality. The people of Israel are implicated by the shedding of that blood. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, do you want to go by the precedent of that bloodshed? Or do you want to go in the precedent of the one-time bloodshed of Christ? The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, you want that one-time bloodshed of Christ. That's what cleanses the core of who you are. That's what guarantees your passageway into the most heavenly and holy tabernacle that is complete and perfect. You do not want to go back to those models, to those anticipations. That is not life. Now lastly, as we talk about this new covenant and the confirmation of what was made to Abraham, fulfilling the very words of Jeremiah, right? Right? cleansing the conscience, writing the law in our hearts. 
uh, this one-time shedding of blood accomplishes this. Verse 22 becomes a transitional verse. Uh, 23 through 28 is sort of the summary of what's going on that Lord willing will take up next week. Again, dealing with the significance of what we covered in 9 verse 11 uh, with that shedding of blood guaranteeing our entrance into the heavenly tabernacle. But verse 22 is, again, what I appreciate in Hebrew, sort of just summarizing the argument in a very terse manner before going on to add to it or to further prosecute it. And so he wants us to understand in verse 22, the shedding of blood, there is a precedent there, right? <clears throat> We've covered that, Exodus 24. We see that the people of God are implicated in this. They've done wrong. Uh, they are those that, uh, if they're going to just try and find some life in this, the most it does is it takes away some outward uncleanliness. It's nothing lasting. But nevertheless, we find that in terms of the ceremony, there is a, a purification that transpires, even though it's outward. So the author of Hebrews is saying, so let's not minimize, you know, that precedent. There, there is a picture of blood being shed, cleansing, purification that transpires. But in terms of the shedding of blood, he wants us to understand that while things are purified, again, purified being basically ceremonial cleansing is a way of bringing this into English, um, outwardly cleansing, uh, making it fit for the worship of God. This is what you would do to bring things into the tabernacle, to bring things into the temple. Um, it's basically saying that all the offensiveness, all the sinfulness of it is removed. It's that picture of that. And again, it's outward. And he says, but I want you to understand of the cross of Christ, because maybe this is part of the thing that's bothering and hanging up the people, going through verse 22, sort of made this click in my mind, that maybe the thing that really bothers him is why did Christ have to die? The Messiah comes in, brings in a kingdom. The Messiah doesn't have to die. The author of Hebrews is saying, actually, the whole precedent of bloodshed tells us the Messiah has to die. And so, if we're going to deny the significance of Christ's death, we're saying basically we can be forgiven without the shedding of blood. And the author of Hebrews is saying, where is that precedent? That's nowhere. Right at the exit of Eden, when Adam and Eve transgressed the holiness of God and they're exited out of Eden, what does the Lord do? Well, I mean, he promises the gospel, Genesis 3.15, but he goes back into the garden, slaughters an animal, and gives them skins. Does a couple of things. Certainly it does give them clothing fit for a thorn-cursed world, but it also communicates that blood will be shed. The tree of life, surrounded, guarded by the guardian angel, the cherubim with the flaming sword. In order to gain access to the tree of life, one has to pass through the sword and face death. The author of Hebrews is saying, these precedents are there. This is the whole point of the Mosaic economy. It's communicating that you are not pure enough to come into the presence of God based upon your own merits. So blood was always shed to expiate, take away, make payment, cover, atone for the wrath of God. That's why these things have happened. So he's saying with the death of Christ on the cross, this is a better shedding of blood. 
Because it's that once for all shedding of blood, as we heard in 9 verse 11, it's a shedding of blood in the heavenly tabernacle, sanctifying that perfect place. So no blood needs to be shed there again, so that this place will never uh, be desecrated, will never be conquered like the old temple. It is a place of true rest, a place that has been sanctified, where we can enter in to that very place, having access to our holy priest, even today, through prayer, as he sits upon the throne of grace, reminding us he can sympathize with us, he knows what it is like to walk through this age. He calls us to approach him in his throne of grace, in the true heavenly, holy, eternal tabernacle that will never be compromised. And so in conclusion then, we ask then, why is the author of Hebrews, what's his great contribution? Well, the author of Hebrews is inviting us simply in terms of these verses to see the sacrifice of Christ from the heavenly view, to understand that, that our temptation is just to look in the cross of this earth. And I'm not minimizing that. I always got to be careful to think, well, that doesn't matter. Well, that does matter. <laughs> so let's be clear, that does matter. But the author of Hebrews is inviting us to see the bigger picture of this as well. While the apostles and, and disciples give us a wonderful presentation of Christ's life and his death on the cross, Hebrews is inviting us to see <coughs> excuse me, the perspective from that heavenly tabernacle. This is a father who is taking the life of his son that he didn't even require Abraham to do. As the angel of the Lord stands there, we say pre-incarnate Christ, saying to Abraham, don't do this. I mean, it is such a remarkable thing when you read that passage again in Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, saying, don't do that. That's not the way this is going to happen. But Christ, knowing he has to be sacrificed in the heavenly altar by his own Father, willingly, not like Isaac saying, Father, where's the, where's the wood, where's the fire? But Christ willingly climbing upon the altar, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the Father then taking his life so that we can gain access. Christ didn't sin. Christ didn't rebel against the Father. Christ did nothing wrong. But he did it so we can gain access to the true heavenly tabernacle. The author of Hebrews is inviting us to marvel at this very reality of our Father taking the life of his Son so that we who have rebelled can enter into that true heavenly eternal tabernacle to have life. And so right now, the author of Hebrews is inviting us to see we don't wait for another day of atonement like Israel. We, we may think, wow, that's great. Year after year, they have this festival. Hebrews is saying, you don't want that. What does that testify to? Incompleteness. It's not finished. When Christ says it is finished and he gives up his spirit on the cross, I mean, that is so profound. He's saying, my work is done. It's finished. You can enter into the most holy place. The promise that was made to Abraham is established. Let us then walk in the confidence of this new covenant being established, ratified, confirmed in Christ. Let us not minimize the significance that we draw near to the heavenly tabernacle because of Christ's 
one-time bloodshed. A tabernacle that is never going to need service. It's never going to need maintenance. It's never going to need a lampstand filled because the glory of God is always present there. That is the place to which we are called to look, a place where we are called to see ourselves as seated today mysteriously in Christ Jesus, a place where we orient ourselves believing that with the one-time shedding of blood, our consciences have been cleansed from dead works. Let us walk in the power of Christ, believing in his definitive redemption and not looking to something else or trying to add to it in any way. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.